at the end of 12 hours of discussions, people wanted, hey, what's the action plan? You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're going to, we're going to change things. So what's the, what's the timeline? Right. You know, is this, is this a three month timeline or a six month timeline? <laughs> and, and you can guess. So the answer to all these questions, like what's the plan? Huh? We don't have a plan. What's the timeline? Don't have a timeline. You know, it's hard to have a timeline when you don't know where you're going. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my intrepid co-host, Rodney Evans. Hello, everyone. We are also joined today by Bill Anderson, the CEO of Roche Pharmaceuticals. Bill, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks very much, Aaron and Rodney. On today's episode, we're going to talk about enterprise transformation, what it's like to attempt change at scale. And we're talking big time scale, so this will be an interesting one today. But before we unpack that, we do a little thing on the show called the check-in round. We do the check-in round, and we ask our illustrious guests to join us, and we will do so today. So uh, we'll start this episode like the others, and our check-in question for today is, what makes you feel like your job is important? (laughs) <laughs> and I'm going to start with Aaron and then go to Bill and I will finish this up. Interesting. It's a, it's a tough question because it's like poking at ego, but also at purpose. <laughs> and my meaning. job. <laughs> um, all right. So touche. I think, uh, honestly, the thing that makes me feel like it's important is that I feel like our systems, the, the structures underneath and around and behind the way we work and show up in society really are a huge lever on how everything works and what's possible and who we become. And so the fact that I get the privilege of working on and in systems makes me feel like maybe I have a big lever. So it mm. feels important in that way. Like it, at least it's high stakes. I'll nice. leave it at that. Awesome. Bill, what about you? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think for me, what's most meaningful is that the idea that I can try to help make other people's jobs better. And that's meaningful to me because in my career, especially early in my career, I had some not so great jobs and sometimes some not so great bosses. And just the idea that, that I could create, uh, you know, a better experience for other people that kind of makes me happy. That was actually going to pretty much be my answer, Bill. So (laughs) I mean, you know, it's, it's satisfying and fun to work in and around systems for all of the reasons that we all know about. But I feel like the reason that my job is important is how many people I hear from who say, I look at work differently and I'll never go back to looking at it the other way. And like for me in terms of motivation and continuing to do this, like I don't really care if that happens to five people or to 500,000 people as a result Mm. of our partnership together. Anyone who fundamentally shifts their perspective on how they spend their life makes it feel important and also like quite sacred as a job to do. (laughs) Can I change my answer? (laughs) You may not. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That was a good check-in. I like that one. So today's topic is enterprise transformation, which is kind of a big nut to crack. But I actually want to start by asking you, Bill, why are you here? You could be anywhere right now doing a lot of important things that include literally saving lives. Why talk transformation with two org design nerds and a few thousand of their friends? Hmm. Well, I think it definitely takes kind of a coalition of the willing. Mm. And, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, just want to get stuff done. They just want to accomplish something. And they're not that fascinated with how organizations work. It's important that the people who are fascinated with how organizations work and have a a special interest in making them better have have fuel. And (laughs) I get fuel by listening to others and hopefully I can provide some fuel too. God, that's such a good point. Coming out strong, come out of the gate strong, Bill. I literally have never before thought about the fact that not everyone finds this fascinating. (laughs) I'm not, I am no joke because it's like, how can you not, how can you not think about how the systems that we live and breathe in all day inform how we behave and think and act and experience the world. It's like, it's so interesting to me to hear you say that. And it feels deeply true. And also like something I've never considered before. I love it. 
So, so maybe let's just start out with, you could just tell us a little bit about Roche. Like how do you describe your organization to somebody who doesn't know that much about you? Well, Roche is a really fascinating company. We've been around 125 years this year, and we have about 100,000 employees around the world. And it's a remarkable place for several reasons. I mean, one, we're in the life sciences and healthcare. We're the world's largest diagnostics company. We're one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies. And we also are uh, really focused on what we call personalized healthcare. And so we have some uh, businesses, a company called Foundation Medicine, one called Flatiron Health, that are really at the leading edge of precision diagnosis and, and personalized treatment for people with cancer. So we get to work in an area that means a lot to people, especially people when they're faced with a, a serious disease like cancer or multiple sclerosis or, or a number of others. And, uh, and so it's also a place that has a very supportive culture and that's a long running thing. And, and I guess I'd say for many years now, we've had a focus on great science, on doing what people, you know, everyone doing what they believe is genuinely best for patients and having a supportive culture, a great place to work. And so these are things that we've, you know, we've sort of cherished as a company. We've done really well with that over time. You know, we've grown both in, in diagnostics and pharmaceuticals around the world. But a few years ago, we started to think about, hmm, what does what the future hold and, and how do we make things even better? So we're going to ask you a million questions about transformation and what all you've been up to over the last five years or so. But I am curious, it sounds to me like the supportive nature of the organizational culture was present even before you embarked on this specific journey around transformation. What are some of the conditions present or like what's in that? Like, I feel like we all know that a supportive culture with high trust, collective orientation, high psych safety, et cetera, et cetera, is really aspirational and is a great foundation for doing any kind of transformation work. What were you all getting right even before you really embarked on the transformation journey? Hmm. I don't know. It, it, it'd be hard for me to say where it came from because, as I said, this is something that predated my time at the company. I, I've been with the company for 15 years, but when I joined and I joined at Genentech, which is the U.S. subsidiary. It was it was something that was prevalent there. It's something that's present here in Switzerland at the corporate headquarters. I think that there's just basic expectations that, well, I was told we don't, we don't hire jerks. But you know, what's funny is I've noticed that some people who aren't jerks, if you put them in a in a environment where there are jerks, they can become jerks. Absolutely. And, and likewise, uh, you know, people that might have more aggressive tendencies, if you, if you put them in a culture like ours, then th that tends to civilize them a bit. So we, we just, yeah, it's, it's kind of in the water here that we expect people are going to get along with other people, that people are going to put the enterprise needs, the mission ahead of their personal agendas. And, and frankly, people who don't, they don't last very long. Given the scale, do you find that that's true in a homogenous way? Like, is there something that the culture has in common across the 100,000 people? Or do you feel like it has pockets that are different expressions of these ideas that sort of in the aggregate equal that? Mm. Yeah, I mean, when you have a company with over 100,000 people and we're operating in over 100 countries, there's always going to be you know, variance in the culture in different places, you know, different locations or departments. But I would say that there, there is quite a high level of similarity in, in those things that I mentioned, that sort of idea of, of a supportive work culture that we put science first. You know, it's not about people's opinions. It's, mm. you know, what are the facts and are we, are we really holding to the science and then putting patients first as well that, that, you know, just like there can't be any question of not doing what's best for patients, you know, integrity is, is super important. Got it. And if we were to roll the clock back now, five years to that point, Rodney was talking about as kind of fertile soil for this transformation. What was the thinking going into it? Why, why transform? You know, why can't we just keep doing what everybody else is doing? 
We went through a period uh, with the senior leaders in the company talking about, you know, what's the future going to bring? And we concluded that the future outlook for our industry was the need for more smaller projects, a lot more partnerships with governments, with payers, a lot of variables, and, and also this convergence of um, medicines, diagnostics, and data mm-hmm. to have more informed healthcare choices. The, the net of all that was a much more complex environment. And we felt like the organization that we had was much more built around a few monolithic programs, mm-hmm. and we needed to be much more agile. And that was the word, right? And at the time, we didn't really think that word had special significance. It was just, you know, like, oh, well, we need to get more flexible, more quick and nimble, agile. That was five years ago. At the same time, I had started a new job actually at Genentech in the US. And I started going around and talking to people about, you know, what what are the needs? How do we make the organization better? How do we make the work experience better? And what I heard when I talked to probably, gosh, you know, hundreds of people over a six-month period, and I heard a very consistent thing. It, it almost blew me away with how consistent it was, which is people said, you know, I love the mission. I love the, the, the kind of work we do. The science is fascinating. I love my peers, you know, great people, but, you know, please help. I can't get anything mm. done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I heard that from individual contributors and from managers and from, you know, senior vice presidents. It, it didn't seem to matter who I talked to. I got that really strong message. And, you know, if I had been new with the company at that point, I probably would have, I don't know, initiated some projects around bureaucracy mm-hmm. busting or, you know, clear the decks, something like that. The, the thing is, because I had been with the company already for 10 years, I knew that over those 10 years, we'd, we'd basically did nothing but improvement projects of that sort. And so how could it be that after 10 years of bureaucracy busting, that we were, you know, sort of worse than ever encumbered by <laughs> the process, by the system? And, and so that really set off some, some deep exploration. So why do you think that those efforts failed? And where did you start instead in the response to sort of the clearing of the org debt and the, the path toward more agility? Yeah, I think the the fundamental reason that those earlier efforts had failed is because they were all basically built on a system of command and control mm-hmm. of of hierarchy and authority from the top, you know, just this picture that somehow the the senior managers sit on high and uh, you know in, intel comes in up the <laughs> up the ladder and then they make their wise decisions and then pass the instructions back down and that what we were doing essentially with those improvement projects was just trying to figure out incremental improvements on you know like for example instead of something having to be approved by two committees let's have it be approved by one committee mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> but it's still getting approved right? Yeah. Or budget process, you know, instead of, instead of having an eight month budget process, let's figure out how to make a five month budget process. And, but, you know, still fundamental, yeah. Fundamental assumptions about how Mm -hmm. the work gets done. I've actually heard before that you have wrestled with budget a bit. So can we zoom into that one for a moment? What have you tried to sort of fundamentally unwind that issue? Well, you know, budgets in general are not, you know, it's not the most fascinating discussion. (laughs) Rodney, you were talking about earlier how, you know, just couldn't imagine that people weren't fascinated by how organizations work. But, you know, if you, if you want to test that, you know, start talking about budget processes (laughs) at a a party and see how quickly, you know, people, people's eyes glaze over. Like, Ooh, my phone is ringing. I got, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I got a, we, uh, we, (laughs) we knew that, that one of the areas where we had the biggest challenge was in budgets. And we asked some really bright folks who were innovative thinkers to sort of re-engineer the budget process. So they went away and they came back with a plan to uh, do budgets in like, you know, 
three months instead of six months. And we said, uh, you know, that's just not going to be good enough. There's, there's no way. Uh, so, so we sent them away again with some new ideas and they came back with a different plan that was a little more innovative. It wasn't just cutting out steps, but what was interesting as we talked through it and we said, all right, we, we, we want a budget process that doesn't encourage gaming, mm-hmm. doesn't encourage cost center managers to hoard their budgets. Right. Uh, and as we talked through their proposal, we realized we're stuck. I mean, basically, <laughs> those those behaviors were inherent in the budget process because it's a budget process, and it was literally at that meeting. I can still remember the the place where we decided, you know, the only way to slay the beast is to stop the budget process. You know, so mm-hmm. we basically killed budgeting for a large part of our organization that year the next year we we killed budgets in in another large area because we realized you, yeah you can't stop the the bad behavior if you have a flawed process mm-hmm. yeah if you're baking a cake you're baking a cake have you been exposed to the beyond budgeting roundtables and groups there in Europe or is this something that just completely grew up on its own within the organization yeah i have to say in this case we hadn't heard of this outside of the company. It, it was, in fact, we, we kind of went at it two steps. The first step was to kill the budgets. And then, and then we thought, hmm, you know, you can't just leave a vacuum. You still have to have some idea for how people think about resource allocation, you know? Sure. What, what's the best way to do it? So we, a couple of years later, we came back and we put some, some guidelines in place for people to, you know, to help encourage the right behaviors, mm-hmm. but we did kind of go solo. I don't know if that was the most efficient way, but it was. Uh, it, I think it was a way that was very convicting and and motivational for us. It's cool to hear you say that for a variety of reasons. One is that we so often in organizations get the pushback around scale, and when we have a conversation about changing something like budgeting, they're like. I don't know who you've been working with, but here in this Fortune 500 company, that's not possible. And it's like, well, it is possible because Bill just said it's possible. Um, so that's really cool to hear. And and the other thing I just wanted to sort of tease out that I think is really interesting about that story is most of us who grew up in traditional systems are so oriented toward efficiency and toward just shaving some off that when we're asked to reimagine something all we do is just like make a slightly better version of the thing that sucks, but it just like, it still sucks. It just like takes a little bit less effort or it takes a little bit less time. And so I just think it's, it's cool. And it's also an important lesson that sometimes you really do have to fully pull something out and see what the system asks for in exchange, because we just can't get out of our own way in terms of orienting toward incremental improvement rather than like a radical rethinking. Mm. Yeah, I think that's so true. And I, I think we, I, I know I still get stuck in things mm-hmm. where, you know, I just, it's a failure of imagination to find a different way or better way, but that's, that's why we have to work together, isn't it? Yeah, that, that actually, I also, you know, wanted to ask you, Aaron's question about beyond budgeting prompted this for me. It sounds to me from, from what you're saying and what I've read, like Roche does a lot of its own internal incubation of ideas and experiments. How do you think about that versus drawing inspiration from other companies, thinkers, authors, whomever, like for you as someone who's leading this transformation and this organization and holding this space, how do you balance good from within and good from outside? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mentioned earlier, I, I do need a lot of fuel. I think we all do. And so I, I do read a lot and I, you know, I, I get a lot of ideas and inspiration from, from the things I read. That's my, you know, my, my favorite approach, but also I think, you know, a lot of it is just, having conversations with people that are, you know, that, that have, basically you need two things. You need people that are really smart and experienced. I'm saying that's one thing, but you need people who are comfortable enough in their own skin that they're not afraid to let go of things. They're not mm-hmm. afraid to look silly or sound silly. And, you know, in the sake of, of brainstorming or innovating, you, you want to end with things that aren't silly but it's 
yeah, usually you need a lot of, of kind of crazy ideas to get to a few that are, that are really great. So speaking of crazy ideas and where they come from, how would you describe the structure you have now around sourcing and supporting ideas for change? You have this sort of banner desire to transform. Is that being driven by a centralized organization, a decentralized mandate from the top down, from the bottom up? Are there structures in place? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, originally, we had two kind of hubs of transformation going on. One of them was at at Genentech that I mentioned, and I'll come back to that. The other was in our global technical operations organization. So there, they had decided to implement Lean and as you know, Lean you know provides a lot of tools and equipping to how you know how do you put decisions with the folks on the front line. Sure. And so they were fortunate because Lean and Lean production is is sort of ready made for a manufacturing environment, and and so they were able to kind of go with that. Where we were, we we looked around and we couldn't find another company that was in our exact situation. So we needed to draw pretty heavily from what was going on in other companies. You know, Frederick Lelou's book, and I know you guys have had Frederick on the show, you know, just talking to folks about, you know, what are dynamic companies in other industries doing mm-hmm. and which of those things can we bring in? So we, we realized, first we went at it with our leadership team for about I'd say six months or so. And then one of the the team members said, you know what, this is never going to get us there. I mean, we're moving too slowly. And in the past, we would have said, well, maybe we'll we'll deputize a group, like we'll create a, a transformation team and we'll we'll have them kind of driving it because the the leadership team was too busy, you know, kind of keeping the business going. And we'll we need to, you know, we need to kind of outsource this. But we didn't think that was a good idea either because just this stuff is too fundamental. I mean, it really mm-hmm. does need driven from the, from the leaders. And so what we did was we created this sort of hybrid. We did create a transformation team and they were working on transformation, you know, 24-7 as it, as it seemed. But meanwhile, the leadership team, we met with them for probably between, I don't know, four and 12 hours a week. Mm-hmm. where we were sort of in workshop with them. So we would be, you know, brainstorming, creating approaches together, and then they would continue the work and then we would come together again. And, and so it was, it was a really effective way, I think, to extend the leadership team and in terms of our impact and our reach. Uh, so today we have a variety of approaches. Now the transformation is happening in virtually every part of Roche around the world. And it's, I'd say it's a combination of local approaches, but also some, like, for example, we have a network of transformation leaders. So mm-hmm. people that are leading transformation efforts in different parts of the company, and, and they come together and, and compare notes and things. And then we also address it at the, you know, at the most senior forums the, you know, the progress and give examples. That's really interesting. This, this might be a bit of a tangent, but what that makes me think of is we often run into people in the C-suite who are like, we need an approach to transformation. Mm -hmm. Like, are we going teal or are we going safe or are we going to do it the readies way or are we going to do it this way it sounds to me from what you're saying which makes a ton of sense to me intuitively at a scale of 140,000 like there is room in the tent at Roche for a variety of context appropriate ways of working how have you all thought about that is there anything that like is consistent and this is the one way that we must or is it up to regions or functions or product lines to determine what style of evolution is right for that? It, it's definitely, I'd say, more decentralized than centralized. It's more uh, kind of viral phenomenon than a you know sort of top-down decision. And I know, and I'm sure you guys 
you grapple with this too. We're trying to make organizations that are less top down, right. and yet there's a there's there's a really important part that people at the top have to you know get behind it and and sign on, or it really can't happen. But I I think we've we realize that in the end, okay, that things need to be more probably more uniform than they are today, because think of it this way. If there's a great way to do resource allocation that is empowering and doesn't kill impact, then we ought to adopt it. And the chances that we're going to figure out 20 different ways to do that are not that great. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. so, so for example, in our new approach to resource allocation, we've rolled that out over most of the organization and sort of said, hey, you kind of need to do this or, or figure out something that, that contains all these elements. You know, mm-hmm. we, we put five elements in it. We said, you don't have to call it this and you don't have to use the same language, but whatever you do, you got to nail these five things. And in other things, there's a huge difference in, uh, I say, the work that gets done across the Roche Group. We have scientists doing fundamental research in labs we have manufacturing plants, we have marketing people, right? And so what's what's going to be most useful for a research organization may not be the same thing that's the most useful for a customer-facing organization. And so, you know, we need to allow for that too. But I, I, I would say that there's a remarkable degree of of harmony. That's probably the appropriate term. You know, we may not be all in unison, but there's a remarkable degree of, of harmony in the transformation work. That's very cool. It's a very cool way of, of balancing the constraint that's necessary to not just have like wild duplication and inefficiency and a lack of learning, but also enough decentralization to get variety because that's how we get evolution. I love that. So rewinding a second. So you and the leadership team are like, we got we to gotta do this work and we're going to we're going to deputize or, or, or have these helpers, or we're going to invest all of this time in approaches, et cetera, et cetera. That all sounds harmonious and amazing in hindsight. And I'm wondering if actually in the moment you had some resistors, you had some folks who thought maybe we're pretty successful, this doesn't really sound like something that we need to invest so much time in. How did you bring along the people who didn't necessarily think a lifelong transformation journey sounded like one they particularly wanted to embark upon? Mm. Well, first off, I have to say that the the leadership team that I inherited was pretty motivated to change. They just felt like, you know, as I mentioned, business conditions are changing. Our business, we, we had some older products that were going off patent. We were going to need to launch in a bunch of new therapy areas. And the, the combination of these things, people were motivated. They, they felt a sense of you know, change is needed. Progress is important. And they were hearing the same things from people like, hey, we're frustrated. We can't get things done. And they had noted that these various efforts that we had been making, just they weren't cutting it. So people were really motivated to do something different. Now, that's that's the good news. The bad news was, I mean, none of us really had a clue at all of what to do. You know, in other words, it was like all the things that we had been trained to do and taught to do and learned to do, they, they weren't working. And so that's kind of hard. I mean, I have to say it was from an intellectual standpoint, it was really draining. And so basically we started coming together. Let's say this team had been meeting three or four hours a month. We started coming together three or four hours a week, sometimes eight or 12 hours or, or more a week. And basically just trying to figure it out, like what could we do and what's wrong and what's right. So it was at the end, let's say at the end of 12 hours of discussions, <laughs> people wanted, hey, what's the action plan? You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're going we're gonna to change things. So what's the, what's the timeline? Right. You know, is this, is this a three-month timeline or a six-month timeline? <laughs> and, and you can guess. So they answered all these questions. Like, what's the plan? Well, we don't have a plan. What's the timeline? Don't have a timeline. You know, it's hard to have a timeline when you don't know where you're going. Sure. Right. So <laughs> it, it was, and, and I have to say that was, that was an intense period where, you know, some of the folks on the team, I think they wanted to strangle me because yeah, I, I kept saying not, we're, we're, we're not going to do what we've been doing. We're not just going to start a process that is like, oh, the three month 
initiative to lighten the bureaucratic load or something that that's not going to work. So coming out of that, you know, thrashing and exploring and sense making, obviously things got done. I'd love to hear a little bit about what you're proudest of, and then maybe along the way, touch on the vital model, which I I read a little bit about online. I'm not sure if that's a thing you are proud of, but if Mm -hmm. you are, I'd love to hear about Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. I, I think, I think the thing that I'm proudest of is that we've, we put a real focus on individuals being able to make a difference every day. Just saying, hey, that's that's really ground zero here. That you know, if we're if we're going to have a hundred thousand people are going to spend their life here, and you know, the the fact of the matter is, we do tend to spend our lives at the place we work. Yep. Then you know, each one of those lives has got to matter, and it's got to matter more than it's been mattering when you know when people have to get permission to take basic initiative. And just the fact that we've unleashed that expectation that, you know, everybody's an owner, everybody has an opportunity to see something, to, to think, to make a decision and to act. And we really, with that, we've really turned something loose. uh, That's amazingly powerful and I hear that everywhere I go. I hear people saying, oh, yeah, we never go back. We mm-hmm. never go back. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's, that's pretty exciting stuff. We, we've got a long way to go. And we haven't, you know, we're not going to create a, a perfect organization. You know, I, I, I give the analogy of working in a kitchen, right? I like to cook, but I don't like to do dishes. We're not creating a workplace where there's no dishes to be done. Sure. But we do want to make a place where there's a lot more fun. Uh, there's a lot more fulfillment and that people are able to actually, you know, do the, do the stuff to capitalize on the opportunities they see. So I mentioned before that, you know, resource allocation, first, what we did is we just killed budgeting and, <laughs> you know, we just said, look, we get, we got to stop the, the gaming, the, the sandbagging, the hoarding, all the things that happen. Um, by the way, when, when I talk to people that are in companies that are still doing regular budgeting and they look at me sort of shocked and I say, Hey, so does your budget process have sandbagging? And they're like, yeah. Does it have supporting? <laughs> yeah. Is it static over the course of the year? So, that, you know, people are constrained about pursuing new opportunities. Yep. And I say, so is that, is that really helping you? Or, you know, maybe it's not so crazy to get rid of it. And they're like, Hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> so we cut it out. We, we stop budgeting. And it's funny, when you get rid of budgets, the first thing that happens, what, and I ask, by the way, I asked a number of people, what would happen if we did this? I, I talked to people at, at you know, dynamic companies that had tried this, and they all said the same thing. Spending will go down mm-hmm. in the first year. You know, in other words, now you say, hey, there's no incentive to spend all your money. You should just spend what's right. And we'll talk about how you did later right? Then spending goes down. But then the, the various forces that cause spending and headcount to go up over time, the same way your closet gets full of stuff, you don't know where it came from. Those things happen in an organization as well. And, and basically headcount and, and spending goes up. Mm-hmm. And so you do need something to give as, as a guidance, just like you know, we all need goals for things we do. Like I, if I'm going to run a marathon, I got to set a goal for myself. I can't just schlep up one day and decide I'm going to run 26 miles. So we, we came up with this, uh, what we call the vital framework and it's an acronym. The V is for vision, which is basically ruthlessly prioritizing. You should only be doing the things that clearly drive progress towards the vision. The I is for improvement. And, and this is really simple. I mean, human beings are not animals. You know, humans have the ability to make progress and to do things better and differently. And so if you're doing the same activity next year as you're doing today, you, it's going to be with fewer people and less money. Otherwise, you're not tapping into the human potential in your organization. The, the T, which is also really important, is talent flow. So when you're freeing up those resources from the activity that's the same as this year, then that talent needs to be able to easily move to something else that's, that's impactful, that's, that's advancing the mission. 
the A is for accountability. And here we mean accountability to peers. That's real accountability. You know, you can, you can fool your boss, but you can't fool your peers. And, you know, we all need peers to hold us accountable and to encourage us and to, and to challenge us. And then the L in vital is for lucid. And that's just the idea that everyone in the organization deserve, deserves to see what's going on, where are the resources going, and and so making that clear. So that's yeah, that's the the approach that we've taken. And it's still go go spend what you need, drive the mission forward, and we'll talk about how you did later. It's interesting hearing you talk through it. I see connections between the pieces that I did not see when I first read about it. Because there are a lot of acronyms out there in our world of change. And most of them are just, you know, so they look good on a t-shirt. But what I like about a few of these is they really feed into this living ecosystem idea, right? If you're making improvements, then you're getting efficiency. That's creating freed talent. The talent needs to go somewhere. In order to go somewhere valuable, they need to see what's going on. You need transparency or lucidity. And they need to have connection to to vision, et cetera. So I, yeah, it feels it feels nicely integrated, which is uh, not always the case with with a solid corporate acronym. Yeah, I also just really like the inclusion of the word lucid because so much <laughs> of what we see in traditional orgs that are command and control is just a lot of a lot of stupidity, like a lot of institutionalized stupidity. And it's you know it's not the fault of the individuals; it's the it's the water that they swim in and it's what the systems tell them. But, but effectively it is amazing to us. You know, we continuously marvel at the degree to which incredibly bright and talented people act like dum-dums at work because (laughs) they have no authority. And it's just like, you know, when I see those people in other environments, like at their, at their HOA board meeting or being parents or buying homes or, you know, conducting their lives. I'm like, you've got a lot of candle power. What happens to you at your job? You know? So I just like the idea that we're going to encourage people to remain, remain lucid at work and and paying (laughs) attention. Yeah. It's funny. You you mentioned that about how people uh, behave so differently at the HOA meeting. And I think it's, it's all about expectations, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. at the HOA meeting, they don't have to get permission from their boss. Although yeah, it depends, you know, maybe they're, they're, Spouse might be the boss in that case, but you know, it's. I think we've created corporate environments as as places where people go to dumb down. Again, not because it's the people's fault; it's the environment we've created that says, "Yeah, here's the limits on your creativity. Here's the limits on your initiative. Here's the limits on your ability to act." And, you know, people just come in with an expectation like, hey, this is a place that I'm not an owner. I, I, there's other people. There's always somebody else mm-hmm. who's, who's kind of the owner. And I just work here. I and, think we uh, estimate the importance of roles, rituals and, you know, norms and ceremonies and the idea of like, yeah, when I walk through this door, I'm this person. When I wear this outfit, I'm that person. When I have a badge, I'm this person. We're so, so psychologically susceptible to really changing our identity on a dime based on those conditions. So then it's fascinating to play with, well, what are our, what are our rituals? What are our norms? What are our characters? What are our outfits? And what, is it, you know, what does it tell you? And one of my favorite trappings of the old world that usually gets eliminated in, in factory settings in you know, teal companies is getting rid of the clock that you punch in and out of. And it is funny to just think like that's a ritual and it starts the day with a lack of trust and it ends the day with a lack of trust. And so mm-hmm. then, you know, where do we go from there? Right. And so what is the first thing that a Roche, you know, employee team member will do 10 years from now when they sign in, log in, walk in is a cool thing to think about. Mm. Yeah, Absolutely. We've talked a lot about where y'all have been and things that you've tried. I'm curious what what feels like it is the next step? I mean, we all know that these these journeys don't end. Uh, yours sounds like it is a long a long road behind you, and probably a lot more ahead. What is on your mind now, Bill, in terms of where Roche is going? Well, for sure, we we have a lot of practice to do, and you know when you when you go to let's say 
more of an external orientation and, and more of a mission orientation. And you've got a new approach to resource allocation and, you know, that, that I just described, you can see even in the elements of that things like talent flow. Wow. You know, in large organizations, making it so that people can move to the most impactful work. And, and sometimes that's at a, at a, you know, sort of at a macro scale, like for example, I don't know if you have uh, team A has 20 people, but next year they only need 10 and team B is just the opposite. Like, how do you make that change happen? Or whether mm-hmm. it's for that individual, how, how do you empower them to kind of leave the team they're on and go do something else where they see an opportunity? So even just elements like that are, you know, things that we will be working out, I think, for years. So I, I think, you know, the, the, the next some some significant part of it is just getting better at these concepts and practicing them and developing them and you know just making them more and more natural for the organization then i I think you know in terms of the next what's you know what's the the front edge uh i think you know on that we're even probably going a little deeper into what you know what are the things that make a, a working life special, mm. you know, like what is a new way to envision the relationship between uh, a person, their work and the company. And I think that a lot of the things that we're doing in corporations today, even the most dynamic corporations, even the most forward thinking corporations, there's so much that's still built on the kind of industrial age legacy, mm-hmm. you know, of you mentioned the punching the clock, you know, the, the, this whole idea that, you know, well, the company sees people as a source of labor and the people see the company as a source of income. And, you know, you achieve some sort of balance between those two forces. That's, that's not really adequate to describe the much more complex and I would say much more beautiful arrangement that's possible in a company today. And, and I think, you know, that, that affects all kinds of decisions we make about how we structure work. So I think that's, that's something that, that we're starting really a dialogue amongst our, our really people who care at, at the company is, is what do we want this place to be in the next 125 years? That's, that's super cool. And I agree with you. I do think that it's really beautiful and one of the one of the things that has happened a couple of times to me recently on internal work that for me has helped with that as a person who derives a lot of meaning from my work and generally does stuff that I like doing with very little exception i still think a lot of us have a real orientation toward um, the future and progress and what's next and value creation and all of the other trappings of industrialized systems because that's what we've grown up learning about and being socialized to. And and one of the things that's been really helpful recently is having more reflective practices built in and really like admiring not just what has actually been accomplished, which seems a little easier, like we all know how to celebrate success, but also taking a moment to admire the attendant feelings of that, that like being on a team in flow that does something new or does something inspiring, or fails in some spectacular way that was kind of cool to witness. Like, I just don't know that we take enough time in systems to go like, how did that feel as a human being in this experience, in this relationship with our environment, rather than it always just being about you know, what did we ship? What did we finish? How did it go? So that just, as, as you were talking about that, that just sort of prompted that thought for me because I've had that experience a couple of times where other people have asked me about the feelings and the experience and the meaning making. And it's been, it's been very enlivening. Yeah. I was, I I was listening to you and just thinking, "Mm, how often do I do that? And I would say not, not very often, (laughs) you know, it's always on to the next thing. And yeah, that's, but that's a basic assumption too, that, you know, we're at work to make progress. And well, I think it's true that making progress at work is super important, but that's not the only reason we're at work. 
Yeah. And, uh, and so I, yeah, I, that's a, that's a great reminder. So I want to circle back, but when you were talking about moving people around and some of the challenges about that and what's next, it did make me think again about hire. And so I am curious if you've been following their transformation in any detail, what you what you think about what's going on over there. Yeah, Aaron, I got to confess. I mean, I did, I did read about what they were doing a few years back, but I haven't, I haven't kept uh, kept a pace of it. Bill, when you were talking about talent flow, I feel like where hire is at now that is very related to what you're talking about is that they've gotten to this micro enterprise thing that they've really figured out, like how to have these small nodes in a large marketplace. And now they're trying to figure out the wrapper to get people moving <laughs> between and like to create mm. the ecosystem around how many micro enterprises do they have? Like 10,000 or... Yeah, it's, I think it's like ten thousand micro enterprises. Yeah, so like it was six to eight it was two thousand originally, then four, then I think six or eight. Yeah. Okay, and so I just think it's like it's it's like no matter how you try to crack this nut, ultimately you get to the part where it's like, right? But what about the dynamism between the things? Yeah, well, mm-hmm. in some ways they have the inverted, like they've they've done it in the out of order in the sense that like yeah. they got a little bit of team to team flow sorted but they didn't figure out how when something super complex and multiple teams have to touch it and work on it in a collaborative way you know how do we structure the sort of like enterprise of micro enterprises and it's also just like when you're flying as high as y'all are flying with your headcount you know they're they're 80 to 100,000 people as well so they're like they're in that at least in the order of magnitude where it's helpful i think sometimes you know it's it's great to read about you know, somebody smaller, but it, it it doesn't always translate. So it's nice mm-hmm. to have a a peer who's doing something at a similar scale. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess to to turn the tables, and may, maybe this will be the last question. Maybe it'll lead somewhere else, and that'll be the last question. But do you have any questions for us or for the audience? I'm curious what you're what you're curious about. Well, probably the thing that I'm most curious about is you know, kind of how much the people want out of life that they could find at an enterprise like ours, you know, like how high should we be aiming? And uh, I know, again, that, that might seem like a slightly abstract question, but I think it's a really important question because I think the assumption of a lot of corporate leaders is that, you know, people they want an income. They want a chance to grow their income. They want to be treated, you know, nicely, and then they want to get on with their lives. And I think, you know, the the, the implications of that assumption that that that's it. It that, that's pretty big. And in fact, take another example of an assumption. You know, we've we've been hearing for twenty years that uh, lifetime employment is a thing of the past, and that people are going to, you know, kind of go in and out of companies and different occupations and you know the gig economy and everything and it's sort of like hmm well what if what if you found that in order to really have the biggest impact in the world that you actually need people who know each other really well who have deep relationship of trust and that you can't build that in the gig economy you can't build that in in two year stints and so you see where I'm coming from with the question, maybe. I do, yeah. It's a great, it's a great question. And and two things pop to mind, not as answers, but just as my own contemplations. One is to me, anyone who is in a power holding role in a system who is asking that question to the people in the system is doing something right. Like, cause it's not your question to answer or any leaders. It's it's what is what is our collective aspiration and how significant can it be? Do we want to do we want to just all be doing the best work of our lives? Do we want to be in a system that is reforming the world around us? Like how, you know, <laughs> where where is the limit of the sky? So, I think it's just it's a cool uh frame for any system to be thinking about the altitude of its aspiration. And and the other thing that it brings to mind to me, and I've had this conversation a couple of times in different pockets recently, is just when we think about really basic human psychology and we think about things like hierarchies of needs, it's like, I think a lot of the leaders that 
I talk to and and people like that you've referenced who are kind of like, you know, food on the table and maybe a 401k and we're doing our thing. If if we're not taking care of what's hygienic, if we're not taking care of the foundational requirements to satisfy what our employees need, then the rest of the journey is sort of ridiculous. It's like, don't, don't talk to me about like passion and (laughs) self-actualization if I might get fired tomorrow and we're working in a completely mercenary environment where like I am treated just as a cog in the system. So I think what I would challenge anyone who is stewarding transformation to be looking at is, are you creating what's foundational as you continually raise your aspirations? Because if you're not, then there's a dissonance that's going to be created for people inside a system. Let's change the world, but for minimum wage. Right. Let's change the world, but you're going to need a second job. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, I do think sky's the limit. and, And I think sitting with that question of what's possible, what can work be, is a pretty good place to draw things to a close. So... Bill, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work at Roche? Because I'm guessing there's a bunch of people who want to know more after hearing this. Well, one place to start would be my LinkedIn. And you can just look for Bill Anderson at Roche. Certainly Roche.com. A lot more information on the company, what we're up to. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been great to have an opportunity to yeah just have some dialogue with you and you know, hear some of your thoughts and perspectives as well. So I, I, uh, I really appreciate the podcast as a forum for fuel. And I, I hope this provides some for some of your listeners. Awesome. It was such a great conversation. Thank you so much for being here. And for our listeners, if you like what you're hearing, please do shoot us a review or even better, forward this show to someone who needs it. Forward it to a CEO who doesn't think that any of this is possible and ask him or her to listen to Bill. I love that. And finally, a quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.